I thought my life was over when I got into recovery. I was like, this is going to be horrible. I'm going to be boring and um, life is over. That is not the case. My life is exponentially better than I ever imagined it would be. Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, the leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So While this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, these stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I want to be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're going to be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here. Here and thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. The views and opinions expressed by those interviewed on I Have 12 Questions or myself are just opinions and our own personal experiences. We are not doctors or therapists or psychiatrists, so none of the recommendations or opinions expressed should be considered medical or psychological advice. There may be adult language contained in some of these episodes, as well as triggers around conversations regarding rape, sexual abuse, drug and alcohol usage, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and many other topics that will come up when we are discussing addiction and recovery from addiction. So please use discretion. This podcast is not for everybody. Thank you. Hello. Hello. I have 12 questions community. So our guest today is one that I've been really excited about since I started this. I think I texted and said, will you be on my podcast? She didn't even know there was a podcast. Um, We've known each other for years and she's a licensed professional counselor and she owns Chronic Wellness and Counseling in Austin. Um, And you can go to her website at chronicwellnesscounseling.com and we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. But in her practice, she addresses a lot of different issues via multiple modalities and focuses mostly on trauma. Um, and uses EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Is that right? Desensitization. Yes. Desensitization and reprocessing and then CPT, which is cognitive processing therapy, both of which are evidence-based modalities. So Paige, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I'm I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're here. This is, this is crazy because it's weird because you're, you're my friend. Yeah. But also you're a professional, you know, person. And um, it's like you get, I, I've gotten a lot of that through osmosis over being around you, listening to you talk over the years, but I'm excited to kind of ask some questions. So I'm going to start with an icebreaker. This does not count as one of my questions, by the way, because it's ridiculous. 
But if if you were a professional wrestler, what would your like stage name be and like your walk up song or like a boxer you know how they have the wrestlers have a name but then they have a song that's playing what's your what's yeah. oh that's so funny because pantera keeps coming to my head <laughs> specifically pantera the song walk so that fits it fits right and then i would have to say page rage that is the nickname that is the nickname i was given when i first went into recovery so, yeah, Page Rage. Pantera, Page Rage. Okay, so that gives our audience a very good idea. Um, and I remember, I this, you know, I remember when I first was around you and I heard you share, and I remember thinking, like, I'm scared of her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't intentionally mean to put up energy, but I have heard that before, that people are kind of like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> But then I got to know you and it's just like, it's that I, a lot of us do that. We have that, right. That gruff exterior and a lot of protection and a lot of armor, but also you're just very confident and assertive and you don't mince words and you're direct. And I think a lot of people are scared by that, but I actually respect it and appreciate it. But before I got to know you, I was like, okay, note to self, you know, don't, don't piss her off. Don't piss her off. That's funny. No, I'm very direct, and I think that can come across sometimes as aggressive, but assertive and aggressive are, you know, different communication styles. And women, in women, we're not as used to seeing that. And so for me, too, even in the workplace, if I'm I'm that way, um, or the other women, it is, you're kind of like, oh, okay, but when men do it, it's, you know, so. Right. Um, Okay, so this is is my first question for you that that counts, but. That counts. Yeah. The, the page rage did not count. So I've had the privilege. I have the privilege of knowing all this, you know, a lot of it, not all of it already, just because I've known you for years. But can you kind of tell us a little bit about what prompted your your path into recovery? Like what, why you got sober? Oh, wow. I could do, how much time do we have? I know. <laughs> You're like, and no. go. I'll keep it kind of brief. So prompted me into recovery. Well, I will say first, I had a lot of fun in my twenties. So at one point, alcohol and drugs were working for me. And then then they just weren't, I kind of crossed over that line, turned into a pickle, I guess, from a pickle and I couldn't uncross the line. So I started having a lot of consequences losing jobs, wrecking cars. I got arrested a couple times, but that really wasn't the external stuff really wasn't what got me into AA. It was this, this place I got internally where I just, I knew I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I had a couple choices. I'm like, all right, Paige, what do you, you can, I can kill myself (laughs) or I can go back to AA. Because I knew something in the rooms of AA, they had something I didn't have. And I can't, I wanted it. Right. Like sparkle in their eyes and people seem to be calm and just doing life. And I didn't know how to do that. So I, I kind of, I just had that moment of clarity. And so I went back to AA and I say that because I did AA for a couple of years in and out. And then finally in 2008, I stayed. 
and my life started getting better. So I stayed and I kept, I kept right. coming back. Yeah. And I, we hear that a lot where people we try, a lot of people try kind of over and over and over. And some people really, they come in and they're kind of done. And then most, most of us though have plenty of, and, and it's interesting how for whatever reason that last time when you're finally ready, yep. um, but it's also, you know, when people have relapsed or when I've relapsed or I was in and out, right. it feels like some kind of defeat or something, but it really, it isn't because all of those meetings and all of those years and all of that, you, it was planting seeds because when you did get to your bottom, you knew where to go. I knew where to go. Yeah. You know? So that's encouraging though, that we, and that's one of the things I love most about AA is that we can always go back, you know, oh. and people, People aren't ever like, oh my God, you relapsed. They're like, oh, welcome home. We're so glad to have you back. Like, of course, that's just part of sometimes, not for everybody, but that's part of a lot of our, our stories. Right. So, oh, why did I put this question so early in the interview? So, <laughs> um, <laughs> we've, so we've both lost someone very close to us um, through pretty traumatic circumstances. And mine is relatively fresh. My, my dad, um, my pop, we called him pop died at the end of September of cancer. And, um, and yours was a little bit longer ago. So you've been through the part, the stretch of road, um, that I'm on and that I'm, you know, haven't been to yet. And so that means you have insight, you know, uh, that I don't have and how much, I guess my question is, you're also a therapist too, on top of that, but you're still, you're still right. a human being, right? Yeah. Like, so just because you have the, the clinical knowledge doesn't mean that it makes it any easier. So my question to you is how do us kind of mere mortals, like grieve, walk through a loss without the help of chemicals, you know, like, and I know it's different for everybody. And I know there's supposed stages and this and that, and there's a lot of debate out in the world about it. But like, from your perspective, as a woman in recovery, and as a therapist, what is, how do we do it? Grief is weird. <laughs> so, start there. Grief is, grief is fucking weird. Yeah. So, oh gosh, it was like a, it was a journey because I lost my partner in 2018, in September of 2018. And it was devastating for, I had never experienced anything like that before. So I did a lot of talking about it. I talked to friends about it. I, I shared about it in AA meetings and I have a therapist, so which is always a good thing. If you have a therapist, it's really good if your therapist has a therapist. Right. <laughs> so I does, did. Does your, does your sponsor have a sponsor? It's like same right. thing, you know, does, yeah. Does your therapist have a therapist? So I did a lot of processing in therapy and I did a lot of writings actually. And I think I was talking to you about that recently. I ended up getting a journal that was specific for him. And I would write to him and it was tremendously helpful to be able to do that. And I would write in it every day for a long time, probably for about a year I wrote in that thing. And then, um, it kind of, you know, not as frequent, not as frequent. And I just had to go through it. So grief is not linear. And when I right. worked 
When I worked in treatment, I would tell people who had grief, I'd be like, okay, well, here's the five stages of grief. So you can just kind of write about where you are. And that is not what it looks like. So it's messy and all over the place. And yeah. But it does get better. And I kind of just after doing the work, I got to that place of acceptance. And yeah. acceptance doesn't mean I like it. It just means that I accept what happened. Right. Yeah. So, so when you were writing, were you writing about your feelings or were you saying stuff to him or all of that? Just what was your, was it like stream of consciousness or like, was there an assignment or a type of, you know what I'm saying? No, good question. In the beginning, I think it was more, I was writing to him. Yeah. Like, Hey, I really miss you. I can't believe you're gone. I did this today. So kind of a stream of consciousness. And yeah. then as time went on, it was more, uh, kind of writing my feelings down it still like I was talking to him but yeah. it shifted a little bit and it's so interesting because now I'll get that journal out every year on my sobriety birthday in April I'll write in it and I that's not really intentional I just noticed that last year I was like oh wow I write in this thing every year on my sobriety birthday that's so cool so I still have stuff I mean I've still got pictures of him in my house and I talk to him. <laughs> yeah. I talk, I talk to him all the time. Well, and to your point too, I think <clears throat> for, for some of us kind of type a personalities, I just want to plan. Give me a plan. How am I going to feel for the first five weeks? What am I going to feel what week six through 12? When's it going to be over? Like, and once I deal with this, I want to never, ever, ever feel that feeling again. I want to know, and that's not how it is. And that's like, it's surprising and it's shocking. And you cry at the weirdest, most random, unrelated, seemingly unrelated times. And then if you're at a funeral or you're doing something really sad that should make you cry, like that doesn't make me sad. It's very confusing. But I think to your point, you just have to like, you know, just walk through it and, yes. and also not have expectations that, that there are stages or that there's any end point. Because really the truth is it's never going to be over because our lives will never be the same. Right. No, I, (laughs) I will never be the same as I was before Michael died. Never. Me neither. I saw things and I experienced things and I understand things in a different way now. And it's just like, I will never be the same person. And so, and I think I used to back in the day, especially when I drank and used, I didn't deal with stuff. I pushed it away. I numbed out, whatever. And to me, my therapist has kind of told, because I was complaining about like, oh, just crying all the time. I'm sad. I hate feeling like this This is not my personality. I don't have time for this shit. You're like very, you know, whatever. And she's like, yeah, like I got to, I got stuff to do. But she was saying that when we're grieving and we're feeling those feelings, it's honoring our love for them. Like that's a beautiful thing to have. But it hurts. And like you said, you don't have to like it, but we do have to just say, okay, this, this happened. Like, and I can now help other people who are experiencing grief and loss in a way that I wasn't able to do before. I can look at a friend or a client and say, you know, I get it. I get it. And they know I get it. Yeah. Hey, right. (sighs) Okay. So what is 
for you, what is the number one most important component of staying sober? Oh, gosh. Well, certainly in being in the community for me, in yeah. the AA community. So it's so helpful for me to be able to sit in a meeting and hear other people talking about the way their brain works. Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, yeah. that makes Yes. I'm like, I do that too. But also, I mean, for me, and this is crazy, given the fact that I did not believe in anything when I came in, it's my, it's higher power. It's my relationship with my goddess. Yes. So yes, huge component. That's a crazy, that's crazy for me because I'm, I feel the same way. I have such a close, cozy, honest relationship with my higher power And I came in being just so over any type of, you know what I mean? I was just like, okay. But now it's like that connection with other people in recovery and my, that conscious contact with God of my understanding. Yes. Okay. So this is going to get a little technical just because I'm curious and I'm sure that listeners are curious as well. But can you explain EMDR and CPT in layman's terms and maybe some of the results that your clients, you know, see from them? And this feels like three questions in one question, but like there's so many modalities now. There's so many things. And it's kind of like which treatment fits which trauma or or right. is, it, is it like skincare where you just have to try everything and see what works for your particular, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand EMDR kind of, I'm not real familiar with CPT. And so, yeah, if you could just talk about those things, like in terms that we can understand. <laughs> in layman's terms. Yes. Um, so I will say first that the reason I was got interested in even learning and getting trained in EMDR is because my therapist and I were doing EMDR on my stuff and I was, I was feeling results and I was like, yes, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that with people so I can help people because it works, right? They're both evidence-based and there's right. a lot of research around both of them, but basically, so EMDR can be very confusing for people because the EM is eye movement. But we're really talking about, it's not necessarily moving the eyes. Uh, It's about the bilateral stimulation. So left, right, left, right. We're activating both hemispheres of the brain at the same time. Because when we have trauma, it gets stuck. It gets stuck in the brain, usually in the emotional side, which is the right side. And then we kind of live there in a way. So what the bilateral stimulation does is move it so it can process all the way through. Okay. We also, in EMDR, we also focus on cognitions. So like, what do you tell yourself about you when you think about this trauma? And it can be things like, you know, it's my fault. I am not worthy. I'm not good enough. So we focus on the cognitions and mm-hmm. then cognition will shift also as okay. the trauma kind of processes. Hopefully that makes sense too. I, it does, I think, because it sounds like, because a lot of people, we have a lot of experiences that are stressful, sad, frustrating, whatever. And we just move past those, right? It's like the day goes and our brain processes it properly through 
whatever. But then there's some that it's almost like anytime something reminds you of it, you re-experience physiologically whatever was tied to that. And it could have been like 12 years ago. That's right. That's how you know if it's stuck. Physiological response is so important with EMDR. Trauma gets stuck in the nervous system. Anytime I hear a client tell me that they've got like fibromyalgia or some kind of stomach issues, my first thought as a trauma therapist is you got trauma and it's stuck in the body. So yes, physiologically we are affected. So with EMDR, we don't forget the trauma. That's not what it's doing. People think I'm like hypnotizing them or brainwashing them. Erase this part right here. Erase it. (laughs) Not what we're doing, but so I still have the memory of the trauma. I just don't have the physical and emotional response that I once had. Yeah. Because I've read a book called, I think, Getting Past Your Past, which is sort of about the beginning of that. And then the body keeps the score. And then you've heard, you've, I've heard like you, we store issues in our tissues and a lot of it sounds like pop psychology or whatever, but like, cause yoga teachers always say like you, you were carrying all that crap in there and that's why we cry on our mat. And that's why, because we are releasing more than just, you know, it's not just stretching or whatever it's other um, stuff, but EMDR is so fascinating to me because I know people and they're like this, this trauma or this memory or flashback or whatever has plagued me for all this time. And then they go in through EMDR and it's like, now it's just a normal memory. It's, it's still painful. Yeah. But it doesn't make their heart, their heart beat faster, sweating the nightmares and all the things like you were saying, the physiological part of it. <clears throat> and then CPT is cognitive processing, like a part of EMDR or no, no, they're, they're, completely separate and actually so I've been doing EMDR for probably a decade I just training on CPT a couple weeks ago so I'm kind of moving into that but I love it it's so it's not CBT because I've been kind of talking to clients about it and they're getting confused yeah so it's similar though so we're looking at the cognitions the way that we think about ourselves and the world and we're basically challenging those okay we're looking at where we call them stuck points in cpt so the stuck points are the things that just keep us from recovering like it was my fault again we're still looking at cognitions but it's more, uh, CPT is definitely more logical. There's a lot of writing and homework and things like that. But yeah. some clients, it's awesome because now I can offer both EMDR and CPT to the client and they can decide which one they want to do. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's just so, it's so fascinating. I mean, it really, it really is. And, you know, so this leads kind of right into my next question, which is, And I think I'm not, I know I'm not alone in this, but I used to think of PTSD or PTSI as something that only like combat soldiers or cops or like uh, war-torn communities, survivors of violent crime. Like that's a very, like if, like if I would say like, I feel like I have PTSD from XYZ, I felt like that was almost like not cool because some people have real trauma, right? In my, I'm air quoting it for people that for, if it's audio, but Trauma is relative. And if it's traumatic to you, it's not, we can't compare grief and we shouldn't compare trauma, right? Like it's, it's traumatic regardless of like, so my question to you is that 
you know, the research seems to suggest that we experience symptoms uh, for many reasons. And a lot of times we don't even know that's what's happening, right? We're, we're having this experience and we don't know that's what's going on. And so is that true for one thing? And can you give us some examples of, of trauma? Can you give us some examples of trauma you see in your practice that, that aren't, you know, war or right, 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 right. Yeah. Combat first responders, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, we see it all the time. So trauma can be defined as a, a disturbing experience that affects the individual. Right. So some people come into the office and I, I love working with women. Most of my clients are women. And what I find with the women, there's trauma typically from like middle school, always goes back to middle school and it can be getting, right. It can be getting bullied. It can be like a mean teacher or professor. So those experiences greatly affect us as we move forward in life. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard so there's so many different things that are traumatic for people. It can be in the home too, growing up with parents who are emotionally unavailable or getting picked on by a sibling. So there's a lot of kind of that, which it normalizes it and it makes it because a lot of it for me, and I know a lot of women that I've sponsored or different women that I know, they won't, they won't call something trauma because they won't, they won't classify it that way because it wasn't that serious or it wasn't that big of a deal to them. And so they say, so we say, and when I was doing my step work and I was in my fourth step and I was trying to list out resentments and all this, and my sponsor was like, I want you to go all the way back to the playground. I want you to go all the way back. And I was like, why? That's so trivial. That's just, but if you really think about it, like that's when we started to learn like, Oh, people are mean. I need to guard myself. I can't trust people. And and so those little traumas add up over time. But I used to, I, I don't know. I have that attitude, like, oh, suck it up, you know, like be tough, get over it. You're fine. Which didn't. Yeah. That worked out great for me. <laughs> I know. Well, that, yeah. I mean, I was kind of raised that way too. It's like you, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Just get over and it. Just, we, we can't, as human beings, we can't just get over it. Right. So a lot of times with little, little kids, when something happens to a little child, right? Like maybe they fall off their bike, they start crying and doing a little bit of shaking. Yeah. That is their nervous system processing that event for them. But somewhere along the way, someone tells us, or we learn like, don't cry. I'll give you something to cry. Like, don't be a baby. And so we, we hold it in, but all those experiences can multiply and be very traumatic. So true. Yes. And you don't realize it. You don't realize it until later. I didn't realize any of this until I got into recovery in therapy, which was like, Oh my God, these patterns are based on so much like misinformation and suppressing that need to be nurtured or just for somebody to say, I'm so sorry you got hurt. Are you okay? Instead of suck it up, get over it. What could be in a baby, you know? And it's like, I talk to myself that way because that's, yes. And yeah. so when I needed something or I needed help, I didn't ask for it. I was like, no, you deal with it by yourself. Don't be a baby. You don't want to be weak. And that led to some really dangerous situations. Well, 
sure. And it kept for me personally, it kept me out there for longer because I was yeah. like, I don't, I can't ask for help. I'm going to beat this thing on my own. Yeah. And that's not how it works. No. <laughs> no, this was, this was definitely an enemy that um, had my number for sure. Okay, so what kind of rituals do you do daily or otherwise to support your mental health? Obviously, you're a therapist, and like I said, you because you know how like sometimes hair people, their hair's not done, nail people, you know what I mean. So like, are you so? Do you have your own stuff that you make sure that you do to to, to take care of your mental health and your emotional sobriety? Given that you're you do it for work, right? And so. I know. It's like if you were a chef and you got home, you really don't want to cook dinner. Like, is it like that when you're a therapist? <laughs> um, honestly, there are some days where yeah. I do turn my phone off of do not disturb at all. I'll yeah. just come home and I, I just want it quiet. So I do, and I don't do this perfectly. I do my best to sit quietly in the morning for just a minute, two minutes, five yeah. minutes, whatever it is just to get kind of centered. And a lot of times when I get home from my office, I'll do stretching. I try to stretch regularly. That feels really good for me. Yeah. And then I just kind of, I just kind of be with myself. Yeah. I do. I do so much better now. I think in the beginning of anybody being a therapist, especially working in a treatment center, as I did, I would take the work home with me. So I'd be thinking about clients and I'd be wondering if I wonder if they're okay. I kind of want to reach out, but we can't reach out to clients outside of session. So I've done a a really good job of leaving it in my office. It's a lot of detachment. So of course I care about my clients. I have to take care of myself. I always wondered how you, because you are very empathic and you do care. And for me in my life, I, I put up this really gruff exterior because I do care and I care too much sometimes right. to where I have to protect myself so much because yeah. I will get, you know, and so, and I know you, I know you personally and I know how you are and I know how kind you are and how much you care about people and animals and all this stuff. And it's like, how do you not just absorb become this receptacle for everybody's pain, you know, without it, but you're, it sounds like it's a skill that you had to learn, you know, of, yeah, I had to learn it over time. And yes, I am very empathic. And there have been times when I've been in session with clients and I want to cry right? because I can feel their pain and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. A client seeing their therapist get tearful, but I just, I just have to, detach myself and detachment doesn't mean that we don't care. It just means I'm hooking my emotions onto someone else's emotions. Right. Which is a skill you've probably had to learn the hard way because I know for me, even in sponsoring, it can happen too, where you go from being of service and wanting to be helpful to wanting to control or protect or prevent something bad from happening. And that's when we're not, I'm not helpful anymore as a, a sponsor, you know, or parenting or any type of relationship that, you know, it doesn't do anybody any good to go in and save people. We're not even equipped for that anyways, that our egos think we are right sometimes, but I've had to learn that the hard way too. And detaching, I used to think that meant like not giving a shit, but no, it just means, it means that I have to, like you said, unhook 
my emotions from their emotions. Of course, you still care about people, but as a therapist, though, I just it. Yeah, I admire that so much that you're able to do that, and I'm sure with time it gets easier. It gets right? easier with time. And there's still sometimes, even today, currently, where I'll think about a client, like on the weekend, and I'm like, oh yeah. gosh, I hope I hope that person's doing okay. Or So it, it still comes in there, but I do a lot of kind of letting it go to the universe or my yeah. higher power. Like, yeah. you, I, I know you got it. They are on their own journey yeah. and I need to let them have their journey. Right. Right. That's, so, that's, but it, that's admirable. Okay. I have, I mean, this is kind of a fun one, I guess, sort of, maybe not, I don't know, <laughs> but what do you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were little or you were a younger kid or even middle school or high school, like, right. you, oh God, this is very funny. <laughs> well, I always thought I was going to be rich, you know, yeah. I was like, when I'm, when I'm 40 something, I'm going to be a millionaire and I'm 40 something. <laughs> and then I went through a phase at one point where uh, this was kind of like in my bartending party days where I wanted to be a club owner. I was like, I'm going to own a club and it's going to be awesome. And I am so glad that I don't own a club. Can you imagine? <laughs> no. So, and then, you know, I'm an artist too. My bachelor's degree is in fine arts and digital media. So I think at one point I had some dreams of, you know, being an artist and making money that way. And that's not really what it looks like. I don't think I knew that about you. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm an artist at heart. Digital media. Well, it makes sense. The way you dress and your tattoo, just your whole like aesthetic is very artist. Yeah. Okay. So my next question <clears throat> is how do you have fun? <laughs> <laughs> well, Amanda, yeah. as you know, I was going to say it's PG, but it's really not PG. You can say whatever you want. Oh, good. Uh, I started dancing about what, two years ago, maybe. And specific, yes, specifically pole dancing. And yeah. I still do it. And I fucking love it. It is like one of the best things I ever did for myself. Love do you, it. Do you have a pole at your house or you do it at like a studio? I'm oh. a student. I'm a student at two different studios in Austin. And then I have a pole in my back room. Oh. Yes. And now I dance with those big ass eight inch heels on. So it is, so it, it is so amazing. I would assume it's really empowering and just fun and it's good exercise and all the, all the stuff. All of that. I hate going to the gym. So it, that is my gym. Do you dance like by yourself or like for other people or like both? Um, like I mean, class, do you have to do performances for your class and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. They'll usually like split us up into two groups and then we kind of do a little routine, the choreo and we cheer each other on. And I would die yeah. of embarrassment, but, but once I got into it, I feel like it might yeah. be, you know? Oh, it's, it's so fun. And you're right. Very empowering. I recommend it sometimes to some of my female clients. I'm like, you should try this. I can see that though. And I love stuff like that, that kind of rewrites whatever story or narrative or whatever's attached to something that's, yeah. that's meant to be, you know, and especially where women have like ownership of our bodies and our beauty and our sexuality and like movement and, 
you know, and vulnerability. That's a really vulnerable thing, you know, and yes. it takes a shitload of upper body strength. I've tried to get on one of those things before. And I was like, I thought I was strong until I tried to do one of those. Like, Oh weird. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a full, it's not upper, just upper body, but it is a full on body workout. workout. Like, ab workout, like crazy ab workout. And then, and then you're in, like you said, platform heels on top of everything else. Yeah. They're like, they're kind of like little ankle weights. <laughs> In a okay. way. I'm, I'm gonna have to go do that just just so I can uh, make fun of myself that would be that would be fun okay so a couple we're have a few more here but my question to you is and coming from coming from a 12 step you know environment this right. may be a straightforward answer or it yeah. may not because I think you've been in recovery for so long that maybe you have different end and or, you know, maybe a variety of different ways that you handle this kind of stuff. But I want to know what you do with the resentment. Like specifically walk us through exactly what you do in the moment when one pops up or maybe it's a recurring one. But like, what's your first, what's your go-to? It, this is this is crazy because it did not used to be this, but my go-to now, I start praying for that person. Yeah. And it's very specific. I I utilize the big book like a textbook, our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and yes. it it tells us what to do with resentment. So yeah. and this was this this is new. This is probably the past like two or three years because I used to just like let it fester and oh. eat my lunch. And I would just like uh, have conversations in my head about how I'm going to tell this person off. <laughs> but I, I don't, I, I don't want to do that today because yeah. I want my serenity. So I'll start praying for them and not praying. You know, I think the instructions are like, we just pray f- that they have everything that I have. For that we want. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes when I do it, I'm like, I hope that fucking bitch gets everything. <laughs> <laughs> is everything that I have. So sometimes it sounds that way. Yeah. But that's okay. Well, and I think too, because you're referring to page 552, which is, it is mm-hmm. literally like when you, when a resentment crops up, pray every day for two weeks for this person's whatever, joy, prosperity, whatever you're praying for, for yourself. It's really general. And that's why, and I've learned, I've learned this the God I was raised with or the idea of God that I was raised with, like, I didn't want to lie, but I was told that God could tell my heart anyways. And so when I was praying or saying something that was not true for me, I knew that God knew that I was lying. And in recovery, because I have my own relationship with my own higher power, who is most certainly female and real cozy and chummy and, and comforting, I, I'm not embarrassed by my prayer being, I know that you know that I don't mean this, but I'm going right. to say it every day for two weeks. And I hope this asshole gets, right. you know what I'm saying? Because it's fake. It's it's part of that fake it till you make it thing. But over time, your feelings really do change toward that person. It softens for some they do. weird reason yeah. because it humanizes right. them, I guess, or. I think it just, for me, it helps me kind of just have compassion, I think, for them. Yeah. And that makes it, my heart gets softer. And usually I don't even have to pray for the person for two weeks. It's just like a couple days and I feel different. 
Yeah. I think too, then something I've heard in meetings and around um, that have helped me a lot, which is in the same vein, which is like putting just like me at the end of a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. That person's afraid, just like me. That person wants acceptance, just like me. That person is wounded, just like me. And so it's like, have I ever done anything that I needed to apologize for? Yeah. Do I still? Yes. And so my first inclination, if somebody hurts me or threatens me is like, you want to be like F this person, blah, 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 whatever. But then I have to be like, just like me, this person is just doing the best they can. And not to mention, it does me no good to hold on to a resentment. And even though I love it, they're so juicy and they're fun. And I love self-righteous anger. Like it feels so good, like for one second. And then it feels terrible. Yeah. Right. So that, that name page rage was given to me when I first came into rooms because I was so angry, so angry. I was just full of resentments and I was pissed. You know what's crazy? Sorry, go ahead. What? No, what? Well, it's just when you say that and I have the same experience and a lot of women a lot of people do. My mom, yeah. I remember when I was younger, my mom used to ask me, why are you so angry when I was like younger? And I was like, I right. don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I just was so angry. I had so much anger. And I, as an adult, I realized it's because I never expressed any of my emotions. I didn't know how. No. And so I didn't it either. built up. And anger was like the safe one for me too. Yeah. You know, I could just like sit in a meeting and just like, do this thing and nobody would come. (laughs) I looked like I was pissed off. Yeah. So it was, it was a safe one. And we know in the clinical world that anger is the secondary emotion and sits on top. It covers up the real vulnerable emotions, fear and sadness. Yeah. Right. And we're not taught really to deal with fear or sadness or say, I'm scared or I'm sorry, or I need help. We're just taught to be tough. And so anger is, you know, and, that was a very popular emotion in my house growing up. Anger is how we express stuff. Oh, mine too. You yelling, and door slamming and avoiding and chaos. Yelling, screaming, cursing, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And then you learn to get real scary so that people don't approach you because you don't want to get hurt. And it, right. you know, yeah. It's, well, it's a coping skill. It's an old maladaptive coping skill. So when somebody comes at me with that, of course, my first response is going to want to be to be angry, defensive, put them in their place, have long arguments in the shower about all the things I'm going to say to them and like, you know, whatever. Um, But then I'm like, yeah, just like me, like that's um, and 552 helps, but it's the last thing I want to do when I'm angry. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting because now it's, it's really cool. My, automatic kind of thought or go-to now is to pray for that person. Cause I'll start like traffic's always a good one, right? Like people talk about about driving often. They're like, you can tell how peaceful I am, what I'm doing in the car. So, you know, if someone's like on my ass at first, I'm like, get off my ass. And I want to slam on my brakes, but cause that's what I used to do, but I don't do that because my, I'm able to say, you know what? maybe there's an emergency. Maybe they just found something out. Maybe they have someone in their car who's sick and they're rushing them to the hospital. Right. So it's again like that compassion and being able to just have an open heart about it. 
Yeah. And I would assume that being a therapist, you're seeing all these people who may act outwardly angry or, or this or that, or they're dealing with different behavioral issues. But you know, that underneath that is like, you're saying fear, wounding, stuff like that. Right. So we all have it. So this is my next question for you. And it's given, given your firsthand experience with addiction, plus the scientific education around addiction, what would be your advice to people who are thinking about getting clean or sober, clean and or sober who haven't made the decision yet? Right. That's a great, that's a great question. So I don't know why this just popped in my head, but I'm going to say it. So, so AA worked for me and it works for, you know, millions of people, Right. that's not the way to do it. So maybe the advice would be just kind of explore things and see what might work best for that person. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, there's a lot of other things out there that people do to stay sober. And, and that's not 12 step based, right? It's not alcohol anonymous. Right. Right. So yeah. And maybe even just kind of thinking about, I wish someone would have told me this because I thought it was all about my drinking. Right. I was like, Oh, once I stop drinking, I'm going to be awesome. Yeah. Everything's going <laughs> to be great. It's going to be fantastic. And that's not the case. Like the, the drinking and the using was just a symptom. It was a right. way that I was coping with things. Right. So it's about, I don't know, for me, being in recovery is like it's been just this journey of self-discovery. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because if you and we've we've known plenty of people who do this. If you just remove dr- uh, drugs and alcohol, you're yes. so miserable. Oh yeah. Because the root of what was making us want to numb out hasn't been dealt with, and like it, we call it a dry drunk or whatever, and, and whatever you want to call it. But like back in the day, right. at a home group that I went to in the beginning of my recovery, I remember somebody saying it's not alcoholism, (laughs) it's alcoholism and it lives between your ears. And so just removing the, and for me, and I know it's, I'm very privileged to, I'm not saying that saying it like everyone has this, this privilege to do this, but like therapy has been instrumental because oh, yeah. the steps and the, there's a lot of things about AA that helped with a lot of stuff that I had going on, but there were certain things that had to be dealt with by a professional uh, counselor. I know it's expensive sometimes. I know it's hard to get access to sometimes. So I'm, I'm not saying like, Oh, just go get therapy. I understand that's hard. Right. Sometimes. But it's huge. Even if it's a free support group or, you know, there's community, there's, different ways to get community support, I guess, around specific types of trauma, or I'm in a, I'm a part of a grief group right now. Cause I want to work through that separately outside of my recovery stuff. Cause I just like an AA, the reason we help each other and we are able to stay sober is because we can relate to each other. And yes, so absolutely. I want to be sitting in a circle of people who are actively grieving right now so yes. that we can walk through it together. And And it's free, you know, that's a free, and it's at a church and they talk about a lot of stuff that makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes, but you know what? I got to stay open-minded. I need to be open-minded. 
That's right. And that's something else like in considering, you know, advice, giving advice to someone who's thinking about getting sober, maybe go into it with an open mind. Because I know for me, I thought my life was over when I got into recovery. I was like, this is going to be horrible. I'm going to be boring. And life is over. That is not the case. My life is exponentially better than I ever imagined it would be. Yeah. And it's like about your, your inner world. Oh yeah. The inner inside. And and I will say, you know, like losing my partner in 2018 was devastating and horrible, but that incident caused me to cultivate a relationship even more with my spirituality and my higher power. And I did I didn't date for three and a half years. So I, I really just got to know myself. Right. So it was, it ended up being a, you know, a very powerful experience. That's so crazy because I went through the same thing and my pop got diagnosed three and a half, four years ago. And I, I remember called off an engagement around that, or, you know, we broke off an engagement mutually. And so it was all this shit kind of at the same time. And I haven't dated anybody since haven't been in any relationships. I've been so inward. I have been like, just, you know, cultivating and I've tried, I tried to be interested in things again. And, yeah. and but I was like, no, I just, I need to heal. I need to understand these things. And I've never Yes. In fact, I'm in the middle of like my one year of celibacy that we're supposed to do. Like at the beginning, I'm in year nine and I'm just getting around to that. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, man. Okay. hey, man. Yeah. In March, it'll be a year. And I'm like, good for you. But it's because all of that other stuff fell away. All the things I used to reach out for, for comfort and numbing or validation or whatever, I didn't have interest in it because I was so scared and wounded. And I felt very alone because grieving is very lonely. I don't care how many people you have around you. Like you just feel so true and it sucks, but it's also like, guess who's always there? Higher power. Uh Uh-huh. That's it, you know? And so I love that you shared that because we have a choice to either go back to old behaviors, ignore and stuff everything Mm -hmm. or lean deeper into our spirituality. And I can, I'm right. coming, I'm going to come out of it so much stronger and better. And I have such a deeper appreciation for just like being alive. Yes. And having my body. No, I get it. When your body just works yes. and does what you need it to do. And, right. you know. Yeah. No, I get it. It's true. And grief is so lonely. It is weird. Even if I'm talking to someone else, or like you said, in a room full of people, it's, it is a very personal experience. Yeah. Yeah. And And I I didn't understand. It brings up all these other feelings too, of guilt or regret or panic or like, there's just, it's just, and then for me being that it was my parent, it brought up a lot of childhood stuff. And. Oh, I can with you being with, with it being your partner that you lost, maybe that brought up a lot of, right. It's so it, it's attached to all this other stuff that I thought I had dealt with. <laughs> um, and now I'm right. going to go back and do some more inner child work and do some shadow work and really yep. make sure that I'm, that I'm addressing all that stuff because also though the compassion and the mm-hmm. 
the feeling of like nothing really matters. Like all these things that I thought were so important or when we would argue, my pop and I were, are very, we're very, we're just very bullheaded people. Yeah. Um, And we, you know, and, and looking back, I'm like, in the end, all that mattered was love, you know, love and time. And we ran out of time and it, it was devastating for my whole entire family, but also I'm coming out of it with just a whole different appreciation for, for life and for him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I heard somebody, I think it was the rock or somebody he was being interviewed by Oprah. And he was saying that he had a very contentious relationship with his dad and his dad had passed and that in the spirit realm, he has a clean slate with his dad. He gets to have a brand new relationship in the spirit realm. And I was like, what a beautiful way to think about it. There's no guilt or fear or this baggage from childhood. You know what I mean? It's crazy. No, I love that. Okay. So I don't know if you want to share this and if you don't totally just say no, but like, tell us about, I want to know about your higher power um, and your relationship with it. Okay. I'm just smiling because my relationship with my higher power, it's so interesting. It it has changed since I've been in recovery. So yeah. I, got so, I got sober in 2008 and I didn't know, uh, you know, I would see like the steps on the wall and I would just see the word God and be like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I, I know part of that. Actually, I know a lot of it was being raised in Catholicism. Yeah. But being raised in Catholicism, but also having like this kind of um, angry household where there was like yelling and cursing and then we'd go to church. <laughs> yeah. And it was very confusing for me. So I did try when I first got sober, I did try religion again. I was going to a church group that used, um, what is that thing? The Recovery Life Bible or something like that. Is it like Celebrate Recovery? Or? Yes. That, okay. That's what it is. I think I know what you're talking about. It's so like I biblical tied to the steps or something. Yes. Okay. Biblical tied to the steps. So I did try that for a while, but that really, I just wasn't, wasn't really clicking for me. Right. So <clears throat> over time I've kind of had different higher powers, but just recently, and when I say recently, I would say probably in the past year or 18 months, I've really gotten connected with a higher power who is female. Um, my goddess, she's right behind me. (laughs) So yeah. Beautiful. So that's, that's my goddess. That's my little altar back there. And that works for me. Right. That is, I feel connected. She doesn't judge. I can, you know, just talk like I normally talk, which is a lot of cursing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's just what it looks like. So I have some connection now that is very, very different than it used to be. I just have like this open dialogue with right. her. So I like to say I'm talking to my cats, but <laughs> I'll walk my, I live alone. So I'll just walk around my house just talking. I'm like, I don't know, goddess. What is the deal? Help me. Yeah. So I just have like this kind of conversation. So... And I know I'm taken care of. Right. It might not look, it might not look the way I want it to look, but right. I am taken care of. So I love that. Yeah. It's so it's so freeing to have that relationship because 
and this is what I, this is part of what I love about AA, even though some people are still very, you know, Christian or they think it should be like this or whatever, whatever. But like, I can modify, it's kind of like if I'm an athlete and I need to modify certain movements because I have a knee injury, AA is the same way. Any recovery community should be the same way. You should be able to modify whatever doesn't work for you. And like, just if you, if it's, you if I have to choose between God and saving my own life, like, it, you know, it shouldn't be like that, right? Like, and there are plenty of people who stay sober as straight up militant atheists and all yes. of that. So that it's not a requirement. I think we just have to know that like, it's not us. That's right. So, so I am not God. Right. And my sponsor, I told her this and that, and I grew up in the church and I don't even need whatever. And she was like, look, the only thing you need to know about God is that you're not it. She goes, if you'll agree to that, we can move through the steps. And I was like, done. Yeah. Okay. And that helped me. But over the years, you want, I wanted deeper. I wanted connection. I wanted, I needed that actual connection, not just to save my own ass anymore, but like to actually cultivate a relationship. And for me, it needed to be female in nature and gentle and like a little mischievous and doesn't mind an F-bomb and like, you know, stuff like that. I just want to be my regular self. I don't want to have to be all cleaned up and proper and pretend to be someone else to be loved and accepted by my higher power. So like this goddess and also connecting with earth, connecting with just the beauty of earth animals, the fact that there's this interconnectedness, you know, but I love it. I love hearing other people talk about their higher powers. Yeah, all that stuff. When I was struggling with the higher power concept, so step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I had a really hard time and I was sitting with uh, the woman who was my first sponsor and we were sitting outside and I was just arguing and arguing. There is no God, God, God's cruel, blah, blah, blah. So she was like, Paige, just look around for a minute. And I looked around and she's like, did you make the trees grow? And do you cause the sun to rise? And, you know, do you make the grass grow? And I had nothing. I was like, no, I don't. She's like, okay, that is your higher power. And and that clicked. The nature thing kind of clicked me and I kind of just that was that was catapulting for me into my journey right and it's so simple and we're so caught up in our heads early on that we need somebody to just give us something real simple to like latch onto. and to me this concept of the sky or this the ocean ocean yes it's just like that there's something out there Oh yeah. The ocean. I, people ask me about my tattoo and it's, you know, aquatic scene and that's, that's God. And it's so beautiful. And it's like, but I think just being able to get out of, because for me, I wanted to make it make sense before I could believe in it. No, I have to know what it is, where it is, what's going to happen after this life. Who is this? What does it look like? You know? And like, nobody, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I was like, oh, it matters very much to me, you know, and my sponsor is just like, get over yourself. Like, let's just work the steps. You're going to be fine. And, and then over time, it just, I don't know. Okay. So my last question for you is what what gives you hope? In just hope? What gives you hope in general? Like people, places, things, I don't even know. What, what's something that gives you hope? Gosh, I think. 
I think for me, it is one of the, one of the greatest, um, benefits of doing the work that I do is when I see that light bulb kind of turn on for people. And that can be a lot of things, you know, like when they've kind of had an aha moment doing trauma work or when something just shifts, that is fantastic. And it feels really hopeful and really good. And even same thing in AA, like when you see that person come in, when they first come in and they're like shaky and they just, they can't, don't know what to do. And then you watch them kind of progress in their recovery. Yeah. It is amazing to just see the, like the, the little glow come back. Right. And yeah. So I think that probably, that probably gives me hope and, I don't know, just seeing human kindness because yeah. there's a lot of cruelty out there, but there's also a lot of kindness. So when I see just little acts of yeah. kindness, I'm like, oh, that's so weird. Cause I've noticed, I don't know if you became more emotional after you lost Michael, but like, I am just any given moment, I can burst into tears over any kind of thing. And the thing that does it for me, the worst or the best, however you want to look at it is kindness. If I see somebody being nice to somebody for no reason or nice to an animal, I just lose my shit. And that's how I know I'm connected because I'm not only do I notice that stuff now, but I feel it like in my bones, you know, I agree with that. Yeah. And I am a huge animal. I'm an animal lover. So animals, uh, they just, they're so, they're so cute and (laughs) cute and innocent. Yeah. And they, it's, it's just, it's crazy though, because the hope that you're talking about, you know, it's, it's the idea of redemption or a second chance or waking up, waking up to life. You know what I mean? And when you lose someone you really love and you know that their life is over, it makes you want to live your life more like, you know, because in my mind, you know, death has always been this faraway thing. It's just this, it's a concept. It feels very yeah. abstract. And then when you see it happen or it's up close right. with someone that you're super close to or whatever, to me, it was just like, Oh my God, what are you doing with your life? Like you, we yes. really actually do die, you know? Die. And I knew that intellectually, but you hear about it and then you go to a funeral and then you move on with your life. But when you're in the room, when someone transitions it's like, this is, our time here is, you know, limited. And so when we see people, women, especially coming back to life, and at first they're, they're hunched over, they don't make eye contact. And, you know, I was the same way. I cried on the back row, avoided people shaking. And then over the months, they're walking a little taller and they're sharing They're It's just like, wow, you know, and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I think culturally, you know, we don't talk about death, particularly in this country, in this culture. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of fear around it. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's spoiler alert. I do know one thing that's going to happen and I'm going to die yeah. eventually. Right. So, yes, I feel like I've got more emotional. I feel like I got much more compassionate and loving too after he passed away. Yeah. There was, there's a tenderness about that experience that you just can't really explain. But I think that like, for me, um, 
before. I don't know. I don't have any answers. Nobody has answers unless they're actually on the other side or whatever. So like, why do people act like they actually know what happens? Because like, how could you? But anyways, that's a whole nother, <laughs> don't get me started. But the thing, podcast. <laughs> the thing is, is like, I've had experiences that make me believe that maybe there is something else. Oh yeah. And before that I was way too uh, scientific and like, that doesn't make any logical sense, but you know, it's like, is this a dirt nap? Is it just lights out? Or like, are we going to go somewhere and get to who knows, but it's part of the adventure. You know, if this is it, we better make it count. And if this isn't it, well, that's cool too. You know? Yeah. No, it's, you know, I believe in different realms and. Oh, I know. Being able to talk to my spirit guides and all that good stuff. So I talk to like I said, I talked to Michael. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he kind of, he loved animals too. So I feel like he kind of protects my cats. Yeah. He's yeah. Like my, he's like my animal angel. And you're one of the reasons why I started looking into that stuff or being more open-minded towards stuff like that. Cause you're very smart and you're very successful and like very logical and analytical, but you also are open to this other. And I'm sort of like, I have used to be one or the other and I'm yeah. realizing that there's but I was like, wait, she believes in all this like woo-woo stuff? That's crazy. And then over time, I'm like, okay, I get it. Yeah, I do. I believe in it. I cannot thank you enough for being on yes. the podcast. Thank you so much. What an honor. It was fun. Yes. Thank fun. you.